This event was recorded live at the 2013 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Uh, my name is Adrian Searle. I'm publisher at Freight Books, um, and it is my absolute pleasure to uh, welcome one of my personal heroes, uh, I'm sure for many of you uh, a hero as well. Um, please welcome Joe Sacco. Thank you. Now, um, tonight's event is uh, sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, uh, and uh, we're very grateful for their support. Joe, um, for those of you who don't know uh, Joe or his work, um, you were born in Malta um, in 1960, brought up in Australia um, and LA uh, in the US, and then studied journalism in uh, Oregon before returning to Malta in your early 20s, um, uh, where you published your first work, um, or first kind of major work? If you're talking about the romance comics, uh, yeah. yeah, I guess so, yeah. The, you then um, returned to the US and founded a magazine, um, Portland Permanent Press, um, before then taking a job at the, the Comics Journal. Um, and then returned to Europe. We drew you back um, to Europe in 1988, um, living in Berlin, That's amongst right. other places, um, and then also spending time in the Middle East, um, uh, which, which um, then led on to your first major work, Palestine. Um, Palestine, for those of you who don't know, won an American Book Award and sold uh, 30,000 copies, at least. I'm sure it must have sold more than that now. They, um, Pal Palestine was um, followed by the extraordinary safe area Gorazde. Gorazde. Um, um, uh, my Bosnian isn't very good. So, um, uh, and then also the Fixer, um, which I have here for those of you who don't know it. Um, uh, based on your time in Bosnia between uh, '94 and '96. Um, and Safe Area Garajda won an Eisner Award in 2001. Um, and then Footnotes uh, in Gaza was published in 2009. Um, you've collaborated with Harvey Picor um, on American Splendor um, and also published a, a really wide range of work in newspapers and magazines worldwide. And the uh, fantastic journalism um, which uh, came out last year, um, includes work that appeared in the likes of the New York Times magazine, uh, Boston Globe, uh, our very own The Guardian, um, also sponsors of the book festival, uh, Virginia Quarterly Review, and Francis Vantian. Is that how you pronounce it? Oh, Vantian. 21. 21. Um, Joe also has uh, uh, another book, The Great War, uh, coming out uh, just in a few months, uh, and we'll also uh, spend a little bit of time talking about that later. Um, Joe, in terms of in terms of the work that's collected in journalism, um, the in the introduction, it's very much a, a kind of 
not only a collection of, of the shorter pieces that you've done as a reporter, um, as a cartoon reporter, um, you also um, talk in quite a lot of detail in the introduction about the perceived subjectivity of cartoons and, and uh, graphics as opposed to supposedly your kind of grown-up uh, war reporting. Um, do you think that um, you know that the that in terms of the issues much more about TV viewers and radio listeners questioning the subjectivity of traditional um, reporting and photojournalism? In terms of um, do you feel that the the you know as as we consume news today that there's far greater amount of subjectivity in that kind of reporting compared to what you're doing? I think there's a lot of uh, subjectivity in journalism that's uh, portrayed or put across as objective journalism. Uh, I think it's difficult for a reporter to go anywhere and not carry a lot of baggage uh, with them. You know, you, you come with a lot of uh, preconceived notions to a place and those don't simply disappear just because you've studied so-called objective journalism. Um, you know, I, as, I, as I say in the uh, introduction to that book, I mean, it, when it, if a journalist comes to Afghanistan, for example, and they're with American soldiers, an American journalist with American soldiers, they sympathize with those soldiers. They grow up in the same way. They support the same football teams, you know, whatever. And uh, they, they, um, they have sympathies for those soldiers. And they, if they were truly objective, they'd say, well, here we are. Um, this is an army of a nation state that has specific interests that it's, it's, it's projecting its power. You know, it's, um, uh, that's, that's the truth of the situation. And they will write as if they're objective, but they've, they've, they've come with a lot, they've come with uh, their own backgrounds. And is, is that a reason why you are consistently very much a presence in your own work in terms of a way of signaling to the reader that that um, everything is subjective and everything is really just the opinion of the of the reporter. Well, I mean, everything was accidental. You know, I mean, I came out of um, uh, doing in America. I was doing a, well, like a, what a lot of independent American cartoonists would, were doing was um, um, first-person stories, uh, personal stories. You know, breaking up with a girlfriend, just what life is like, and all this. And when I went to the Middle East, I had a degree in journalism. I thought, well, I will just sort of continue this process. It's my experiences in the Middle East. And naturally, the, the, my journalistic impulses sort of kicked in. Um, and I, um, I started thinking in terms of putting a story together journalistically. But I was, I was in the story. It was partly my travelogue and it was my experiences. So the subjectivity was in some ways accidental. I wasn't thinking in terms of I'm going there and I'm going to write this objective story where I'm going to talk to the Israelis and talk to the Palestinians. I just thought I'd, I'd like to uh, go to these areas. I'd like to uh, meet Palestinians and write about my experiences sort of there. And when I was uh, beginning the work itself, I realized there's no way of drawing me out of these stories because so many of them had a personal element uh, I didn't want to draw myself out of the stories, and I realized whatever I was doing, it was certainly subjective. 
Um, you play, to some extent, you're, you're far more of an active protagonist in Palestine in a way that your presence kind of shrinks back a little bit in the later books. Was that conscious? Well, in some ways, I mean, I was more, like I said, I was, I was thinking in terms of um, personal stories, uh, travelogue. Um, when I became a little more, let's say, sophisticated in the journalism I was doing, and I was concentrating on characters that I was meeting, let's say, in later, in later years in Bosnia or in Gaza, I realized I didn't really need to be that sort of presence I was in the earlier book. In the earlier book, I was the thread through a lot of unconnected stories. I mean, if you read Palestine, it's sort of embarrassing to me to look at it now in a way because it's, it's not well-structured. I basically wrote an issue, drew an issue, because in those days it would come out um, in serialized. There were nine issues. So I wrote an issue, drew an issue, and then you know, I would continue with this process. And the only thing really holding it together was my presence. When I was in Bosnia, I was, I was in a town. The town was kind of the character. And the people were very, the people I was meeting uh, were very strong figures, strong characters, and I knew you, I had to sort of step back a bit to let them uh, shine, let's put it that way. But I realized it's still important to have my presence because so much of, so much of what I find interesting is the relationship people have in those situations to an outsider. Yeah. And I never want to cut that out. But I, I have noticed also that as time has gone by, I've become a, maybe a little more distant as a, as a character. <laughs> And in terms of in terms of that process um, of creating your work um, in in those early books, um, did you sketch as you were in those places, or did you purely work on the narrative and then sketch when you start start drawing when you got home? You know, the only time I ever, let's say, purposefully left a camera behind is when I toured with a rock band in the '80s, and I did a comic about that. I wanted to learn how to sketch quickly. I wanted to learn how to sketch when they were on stage, and of, I wanted to learn how to just learn how to draw, basically, and that experience was a really good one for me. But when I was doing my more journalistic work, to me it was much more important to talk to people. It was much more important to sit down and have conversations. And I found that if I pulled out a sketch pad and I started drawing, I mean, people got interested in what I was doing, and it, it didn't really work for me. I would rather just take a picture of something, and I mean, my pictures of very, very boring, but they're very good reference material for me. I'd rather do that than do a lot of sketching. The only times now when I sketch, really, is if it's not a, a, um, a situation that you, wanna, you want to uh, uh, use a camera. For example, in the Gaza book, uh, there are some scenes where we're going through an Israeli checkpoint that at the time Israel was in Gaza, uh, physical presence in, in Gaza Strip itself. And there was a checkpoint that divided North and South Gaza. And sometimes we would be stuck at the checkpoint for hours, sometimes 10 minutes. And it wasn't really wise to raise a camera to a military position where they say, you know, do not, you should never take a picture of a military position. If you're in a taxi with a bunch of people, you know, you don't want to endanger them or yourself. So I would sketch this this checkpoint and I was stuck at this place enough times over the course of a couple of months that I I got it from both sides pretty well so in those cases yeah I'll, I'll sketch but um, generally not so much I don't even use I don't even sketch much um, at home 
Um, the, in terms of when, when you're talking to the subjects that, that ultimately end up in your work, um, do you think that without a video camera or a tape recorder, which are the kind of trade tools of the, of the reporter and, and the war reporter, um, do you think that you get, somehow get a less contrived response from those people that you're talking to because you're really just engaging them in conversation? Um, or or you know, uh, is it very much the same for everybody? Well, I'd like to think that I'd like to think I'm not, I don't leave such a footprint when I'm there or that I'm making such, a, um, I'd, I'd like to think my presence isn't huge when I'm in a place like that. Um, often I'm in a place for some weeks or even months and my hope is that I, people get so used to seeing me in the street that they just don't think about me anymore. I think it's a little harder to do when you have a TV camera and a crew with you. And I mean, the problem with, for all journalists is sometimes you know people play to the journalist, and they often will play to cameras, uh, or they can certainly play to video. And um, I'm lucky in that I don't have that problem, but I'm sure there are other problems I have. You know, people can hold things back. There are a lot of there are a lot of just issues with journalism in general that you know I share. There are problems other journalists have I I share, but as much as possible. I don't want to be a big presence. You know, I have this sort of slow journalistic way of doing things. It's, uh, okay, you can't talk today because you're going to the mosque. Let's meet tomorrow. I, I give myself time as much as possible so that I'm not annoying them and, and sort of forcing myself upon them with equipment or with anything. Excellent. Um, in terms of, I mean, from my point of view, um, it seems that personal opinion is is very much at the at the heart of your work. Um, you know, you do choose sides. You know, and you've been uh, you know you've talked about that very eloquently. Um, just as you know, many of the great war reporters uh, like Don McCullen, Robert Fisk. Um, do you think that there should be more outrage um, in kind of traditional news reporting, whether that be? Um, press-based news reporting or, or, or television, uh, radio news? I don't know if there should be more outrage for the sake of outrage. But, you know, sometimes you're sitting around a table uh, talking to other journalists and they've all come back, everyone comes back sometimes and you, you meet at a restaurant and you talk about what happened in the day. And sometimes the stories they tell around the table say a lot more about a situation than what they're reporting. The problem they often find is that they are involved in the story because it's often it's about negotiating into in a, in a place that doesn't see foreigners so much or an outside presence is uh, suspect or whatever it is, but it tells you a lot about the situation itself. And those stories are personal. When I, and sometimes I'll say, why do, why don't I read this in your stories? And they say, well, my editor's not going to want that. They want they want sort of the hard news, like, like what happened, and often uh, reporters, most in American journalism in particular, less so in British journalism, most journalists don't write themselves in. And I think in some ways there might be a sort of an institutional pride in not writing yourself in. So being, they might personally be outraged, but be careful about showing that. 
their, if their outrage shows, it often is on what they choose to report. Of course, that's, there's that problem with the editors in London and New York. It's what they choose to put in the paper and what they choose to ask the reporter to do. So it depends on the politics of the newspaper and the politics of the journalist, what gets shown, even in a so-called objective you know, scenario. And for you, in terms of the way you've responded to the situations that you've been in, whether it be in the Middle East or the Balkans or um, you know, your, your, your um, country of origin, uh, Malta, um, did that come completely intuitively to you or did you make a very conscious decision to kind of cross that journalistic line? Well, I sort of crossed the line early on after I got a degree in journalism and I studied in an American university where we were taught the objective way was the right way. And I basically took that on faith. Um, at some point, it was around, it was in the early 80s when Israel invaded Lebanon. And then um, the Sabra Shatila massacre, if you are familiar with that, uh, in Beirut where Israel's allies went into a couple of uh, uh, Palestinian refugee camps and this was cordoned off by the Israelis, and these Christian militias massacred um, hundreds of Palestinians. That's, that is the point where I, something went off in my head, and I thought, but I thought the Palestinians were terrorists. And, and I was a college-educated person, and um, it made me really rethink what was going on. I realized I didn't know what was going on that the only time I'd ever heard the word Palestinian in an American newspaper or in an American television show was when there were rockets firing into Israel or there was some outrage committed by Palestinians. All could have been factually true. Individually, these were object you could report objectively that a bus was attacked by Palestinian guerrillas and several uh, innocent Israelis were killed. Objectively true. You string a, a series of stories like that together without any context, because I realized that was the key, yeah. not that it absolves uh, you know, criminals of their crimes, but there was some other history here that I wasn't aware of. So when Palestinians were killed in a refugee camp, I thought to myself, I mean, I didn't really know much about the situation at all, I realized. And I realized this so-called objective journalism that only presents you with specific facts, unconnected, doesn't necessarily tell you anything of the truth. And so I became sort of suspicious, and I began to educate myself on that issue, on others, and my mind began to change about how you should approach these sorts of things. And, and presumably, hence, that's why you felt that actually immersing yourself in, in that context and spending time, and rather than kind of choppering in and choppering out, um, the, the need to, to be in one place for a decent length of time and, and talk to as many people as possible was, was well, I, the, the best approach. I didn't, I didn't know Palestinians as people from reading American journalism. I didn't know anything about them. You know, I knew about American victims of terrorism because those, those people, you know, were personified. They were made human in stories, as they should be. But you never got something else. You never got what was happening to the Palestinians, you know. Um, was, was the, um, I mean, the fact that you say that, you know, in terms of um, the way that the, the dominant culture was presenting the Palestinians at, at the time was as terrorists, and then you had your wake-up call. I mean, one thing that's very clear in your work is that I think, like, like many novelists, you're drawn to moral ambiguity. 
um, you know, the exploration of the warlords in um, the Fixer, you know, is is a great example of that of how you know, on <coughs> the one hand um, with Garajda you you very much explored a kind of pretty clear black and white situation, but then looking you know, kind of deliberately going on the the other side and kind of kind of looking at the the complexity of the the Muslim militias and the fact that it's you know war is a dirty business and right. I mean, well, even in the context of the Palestinians, at some point, you know, you realize portraying them as victims with a capital V also is dehumanizing. You have to see, you have to see whatever group it is as people. And, my, and my, the way I distinguish, what, my, my, what I distinguish is objective journalism from honest journalism. Like whatever you see, you report honestly. And often you don't see things that line up with your own particular viewpoint, your own political viewpoint. But as a reporter, you say it doesn't matter. I mean, if I'm seeing this here, and I'm seeing it again, and then I'm seeing it again, there's something going on that I need to report as an honest journalist. You know, whatever it says about, let's say, the Palestinians or some other group I'm with, because that's, that's important to me. You know, but uh, yeah, there are a lot of moral ambiguities, obviously. And, and yeah, the, uh, the warlord situation was, was interesting to me because uh, I approached even going to Bosnia, I, I approached it in a naive way because I hadn't even reading, and, and I was following that war very closely before I went. Um, it's only when you get there that you begin to understand what's really going on. Uh, you, you get a lot of the big picture from newspaper accounts, but then when you talk to people and what's interesting in their lives and what are they, they're afraid about, then you realize they're not just afraid about the other side, they're afraid of their own side. That's an interesting thing to find out. I mean, certainly, certainly in Grajda, the the uh, one of the things that comes out compellingly is is the on the one hand the dependence that the the, the people in Grajda had on each other, but also the individualism and the fact that actually there wasn't a huge amount of collective activity and and the fact that people were really kind of drawn fundamentally to their own families and not much further because there was so much distrust. It's, it's sort of interesting, when you, even when you um, hear about these massive Serb offensives about uh, this town that was cut off, uh, it's clear from everything I've, I heard and the, you know, from the people I talked to that if that was your neighborhood, you defended your neighborhood. Uh, but if it wasn't your neighborhood, you might run. Because there were a lot of refugees in Garaja and there was no neighborhood in Garaja that was theirs. They were from other towns that had been ethnically cleansed. So they had no vested interest in any particular village or neighborhood to defend. Only the people who lived there were doing it sometimes. So you're right, it was uh, surprising how often uh, things were not coordinated. Um, should we take an opportunity just to have a look at some of the artwork sure. from, uh, from journalism? <coughs> and the... Um, I don't know if you want to kind of move out in terms of so that you can see... Um, the, um, this is from um, the New York Times magazine. It's about the tunnels in Gaza. And it was a surprise to me that the New York Times wanted me to go to, to, uh, to do a story in Gaza, but they did. So um, it, was a, it was actually a pretty good experience, except when I was uh, showing them the artwork, more than one editor got involved. I think they were worried about having a comic in the Sunday magazine. and. Uh, in one case, I'd done some cross-hatching, and one editor said, 
now you're drawing all these crucifixes in the background, what does that symbolize? <laughs> and I said, it's just cross-hatching, you know? But they were worried about it, you know, they were worried about it for some reason. Um, for them, uh, was, the, was the kind of, um, that act of, of commissioning you as a cartoonist, was that, uh, did you feel that that was a thrill for them in terms of, you know, them you know, kind of taking quite a radical turn or were they fairly pragmatic? I thought, I thought the editor who suggested it and got it approved was taking a bit of a risk, you know. And I'm glad he did. And, you know, to their credit, they, they printed what I, um, I did. And, and you know what's kind of great is when you go into Israel, you get a, a press pass from the Israelis. And when they saw the New York Times, they said, well, you're going to go to Gaza. Why don't you see things from our point of view? So right away, I didn't even think to ask. They let me come with an Israeli unit. I mean, I spent some time, some days in Gaza, in with the Palestinians, then I spent time in a, in a watchtower looking over the, the neighborhoods that I'd spent, you know, quite a bit of time in before. Um, this is also from, uh, this is from Harper's Magazine. Actually, it's not from Harper's Magazine. I had to redraw this for Harper's Magazine uh, because the editor didn't like the human figures in it. He was more into landscape and, and he, he made me redrew it. And, I was almost going to walk away from this whole project. I was so upset. And any human I drew, I made sure after that I just made him look away because I figured he's going to object to it. You do, do great landscapes. But. No, and, I, and I'm glad for it. But I mean, this woman was, uh, I thought this was the story. She was searching for, I think, her, her uh, daughter-in-law's wedding rings and her, her house had just been bulldozed. This is... Uh, from my story about uh, African migrants in Malta. Um, and I was telling the story of an Eritrean. Um, what, what kind of relationship do you have with Malta? Because obviously you left as a very, very young child and then returned you know, as, as a young man, um, having been educated yeah. in Australia and, and the States. Um, do you feel Maltese? Um, do you, you know, um, what do you think about Maltese? I feel Maltese only because I've, I've, whatever seeped out of my parents into me is Maltese. I don't feel Maltese by virtue of my passport or being spending time in Malta, to be honest. I, whatever Maltese-ness is in me is from my parents, not from really being Maltese or living in, in Malta, if you know what I mean. Um, I, I mean, artistically, uh, what's, the, what's the culture like in Malta? I'm, I'm a... Uh, as we're talking about the, the, I'm a big Caravaggio fan, and one of the few things that I know about Malta is that they have some magnificent Caravaggios. But they do have some magnificent Caravaggios, I and mean, and my sense of art history isn't all that good. I wasn't influenced by someone like Caravaggio, if that's what you're asking. But um, um, you know, it was good for me to go to Malta to do, to do a story in Malta, partly because I, I thought, well, I've looked at, you know, I. I'm in other countries looking at what's going on, and here's my homeland where uh, migrants are having great problems like they have all over Europe. But why not tell it from this, a very, uh, this one little microcosm? And in Malta, it's very possible uh, to go to a minister's you know, door and knock, and knock on it. So you get to speak to the government quite easily in Malta, and I thought it would be a good place to actually talk to government people, to Africans, and to Maltese. And I figured, because I can speak Maltese fairly well, 
um, I could do it without a translator. And, and it's very interesting what people say when they think you don't know how to speak their language. Because, yeah, it's, 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 they would say things and then say, oh, he speaks Maltese? Yeah, then they were more careful about what they would say. And um, in, terms of, uh, in terms of having been kind of fairly peripatetic as a child, um, did your drawing, uh, you know, and, and kind of enjoyment of drawing, um, do you think that had anything to do with moving around as a kid? Um, you know, was it a, a means of integrating with other children having come from another place? Was it a means of escaping from other children? Uh, was there, uh, excuse me, psychoanalyzing you, but... Uh, you mean as far as like just drawing? Yeah, in terms of the, the were you drawn to drawing? Um, you know, I was drawn to drawing because my, my mother drew quite a lot. And I was always uh, copying what she drew. In fact, the first, the first uh, art award I ever won, the first thing I ever won, a prize, was my mother drew something for me. You had to draw Fredo Frog watching television. She drew it, she put my name on it, and I won. <laughs> <laughs> so I, so based on that fraud, I, I moved forward. <laughs> <laughs> but um, um, this is from uh, India. Uh, story of uh, Kushinagar, this uh, district in Uttar Pradesh that's very poor. I was trying to get away from conflict, but I realized conflict comes in a lot of guises. Yeah. And, and, and looking at uh, the caste system and mm. the, the hierarchies uh, and those people at the very bottom. These people are at the very bottom, definitely. I mean, and you know, this caste system sort of within the caste system, even within the, among the Dalits, the, um, the, what they used to call the untouchables, there's a caste system within that. I mean, there are certain priorities, certain hierarchies. And again, that's, that's a regular theme of your work in terms of looking at those in power and looking at those without power, and particularly where they're, they're kind of rubbing against each other, you know, in terms of um, in war-torn places or places of great poverty. Um, is that just purely because, because that, that conflict interests you and, and, and gives you the narrative, or um, is, uh, you know, is it uh, a more political kind of side of your personality? It's probably a more political side of my personality. I mean, I, I think I operate a lot on anger, in a way, and that's the that's the way to to get it out. You know, anger is a constructive force. And um, in terms of obviously the as an artist, um, I mean, of, of of the war reporters, you know, and you've you've been on record as kind of saying that you're not so keen on on that uh, title. Um, but as somebody who's reported on wars, um, you know, it's, it's clearly can be a, a, a very troubling, if not damaging, experience. Um, and, you know, in terms of the things that you've seen or the things that you've heard recounted, you know, certainly, um, I think, would make, make the best of us very, very angry indeed. Um, does the artistic side of, um, of the way you express yourself, does that conflict with that anger? Or does it help mitigate it? Um, the artistic side, um, it helps, I'd say on some level it helps mitigate it because now this is, you know, you spend time in a place, you hear people's stories, and you feel like, okay, whatever, for, for whatever it's worth, this is when I can do something about that situation. Again, for whatever it's worth, this is when I can sort of, um, 
you know, have agency or, or their voices can have some agencies when I, when I try to get it on, on the paper. So on that level, I feel like, uh, you know, um, I'm, not, I'm not in a rage as I'm drawing, I'll tell you that. You can't be. Yeah, it's, I'm, it's I'm, I'm relatively well, well adjusted, I think. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's, it's more anger that gets me to go to a place. And even when I'm there, you know, you try to be as cool as you can be, no matter what you're seeing or hearing, because you won't be effective if you're not. So the anger is reserved for getting me wound up, like getting me into that mode that I think, okay, I can go and there and I can do this story and I can spend X amount of years of my life working on this. That's what, it sort of winds it up and, and then sustains it. But being there is a very, being at, at, in the field, so-called, is a very cool, I'm in a very cool state, yep. if you know what I mean. And I guess in that, in that, you know, recording with the mind's eye, that in itself is quite an objective process because I, I presume that you're looking all the time and, and although you're not necessarily drawing until you, until you leave, um, you're just absorbing the way things look, the, 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 the shapes and patterns of an individual place. You're absorbing a lot and there's a lot you can carry with you if you're really paying attention. But then after about two years of being at home drawing, you begin to refer to the photographs a lot more. You realize even the way you drew things, you know, a hundred pages ago, because you, you've lost that taste of what it was like, you know. So everything has a half-life, including that sort of memory. Um, this is uh, from the story about uh, Chechen women. And it was kind of a pleasure to do this story because uh, often when you go to certain places, it's usually the men who come forward to speak, especially in conservative places. Um, th the men put themselves in front of you to speak. And in this, in this particular story, it's called Chechen War, Chechen Women. And it, it's, it, uh, I did the reporting in Ingushetia, in refugee camps. Uh, the whole idea was to focus on Chechen women. So it's interesting speaking to women because um, they often don't start a story with uh, some historical overview. It's more about this is what my kids are going to eat tonight. You know, it's, it's very, it's on this level that I, I really appreciate. And you realize they don't, often, they don't often talk about their experiences in the same way that men do. What kind of response did you get to this piece? Because I think of, of all the conflicts that you've covered, the Chechen War is probably, certainly in the UK, being the least reported um, and the, the least examined. Well, this was part of a, a bigger project um, uh, called I Live Here. This is, this is a slide from uh, the same piece, but it's showing what happened to the Chechens in World War II when every single man, woman, and child in um, Chechnya and Ingushetia uh, that was of Chechen origin was uh, taken and uh, taken by train by Stalin and sent hundreds even thousands of miles away just relocated they were considered a a fifth element or whatever you want to call it some other you know enemy element during the great patriotic war so um, they were all removed and then slowly filtered back later and this is from Iraq um, spending time with Marines. Not one of my most successful stories either. This is from uh, another story that takes place in, um, in Iraq, but it was actually with two guys. They were very interesting. Uh, they had been 
detained and tortured, and they were in the United States uh, through a couple of uh, uh, human rights organizations to sue Donald, Donald Rumsfeld, who was defense secretary at the time, for their incarceration. And it was sort of a, a publicity tour in a way they were doing. They, of course, the case was thrown out. But they were interesting because they were in America, and they sort of wanted to be tourists. They just wanted to have a good time, but they were having to tell their story over and over again to journalists, including me. I, I sort of traveled with them for a few days so they would get used to me before I asked them anything too, too difficult. And it was, it was interesting. You know, of course they understood why they were there. They were there to give their stories, but they just wanted to feel a bit, you know, they wanted to feel like they were on holiday in America and seeing the Lincoln Memorial, you know. They were interesting guys. This is a story, another one from Iraq, uh, where it was, I, I didn't know whether to cry or laugh when I was actually seeing this in front of me, but it was uh, two, um, two uh, US servicemen teaching Iraqi National Guardsmen just the tricks of the war trade. They were being trained. And these guys, these, most of whom were illiterate, um, had signed up because they needed money. And what they, the last thing they expected was they were going to be you know, locked in a building and then shipped somewhere so they could break their tribal allegiances and then learn all these techniques. And these two American guys were, they just watched one too many you know, drill sergeant full, movies, full, full, metal, full metal jacket okay. and all that, because they were into that whole thing of, you know, get on the ground, do push-ups, no! And they were having it translated by someone. It was just the, <laughs> and these guys were like in tears. I mean, that's not what, you don't sign up for push-ups, you sign up for a paycheck. Doesn't everyone know that? You know, it's, uh, it was just an odd story. That might be it, I don't know. No, I think it's... Name. Oh, this is from the Great War yeah. book. Tell us, tell us what drew you to the Great War as a subject. I've been interested in the First World War for a long, long time. I mean, I have, I have a, a lot of books on the First World War. And a long time ago, a guy who is now an editor at Norton was my roommate in New York. And I think we were drunk, and he said, it would be so great if you draw, drew a panorama of the Western Front. And 15 years later, he calls me up and he says, do you remember that idea? I said, uh... Sort of. And he, he proposed it to me, and I thought, oh, I want to do other things. But then I thought, you know what? I'd like to do something without any words. I just want to draw. That was part of it. And then I thought, all this reading I've done of World War I, at some point, I felt, you feel almost guilty reading that stuff. Like, how many books can you read about the Battle of the Somme? And then you feel like, okay, now I'm going to do something about it. I actually feel like maybe it's all come to some, some good or some art. And... Um, and, uh, and is the book just these, these huge big panoramas? Um... It's one panorama. It's, right. It actually folds out like accordion style. Oh, wow. And um, I gave it a narrative. I didn't just have a static view of the Western Front. Um, it actually shows troops moving up, the battle, the first day of the Battle of the Somme, and then troops moving out. So it has a structure. And, um, I mean, were you conscious of, of the other cartoonists and artists who've represented the Great War? Well, yeah, like Jacques Tardy, yeah. for example, the French, the French artist. I knew I could never approach World War I quite the way he did. Or, of course, there's Charlie's War yeah. that you're Joe familiar Cardin. with here. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I, I have some volumes of Charlie's War, but I decided not to look at them. Uh, I didn't want to be... Because what's the name of the artist that John... Uh, Joe Cahoon. Joe, Joe, okay. I can't pronounce the name exactly. Um, <laughs> 
he's, that work is so beautiful and it's so exact that I have a I didn't want to look at it and think, oh, this what I'm doing now is just has there's no comparison in a way, you know. He really knows what he's doing. I didn't even want to look at it to figure out equipment, yeah. you know. And in terms of the scale, you know, in terms of it's, it's probably the most panoramic and, and the biggest scale, you know, in terms of clearly set pieces and, and some of your other work that really kind of shows that. I mean, again, Garajda, you know, the, the, the kind of scenes from the, the hills above. Um, the, did you feel that, that that approach particularly suited that subject matter in terms of the scale of kind of the, the machine of war? I wanted to show a mass human event. I mean, all of this, all this human potential and industry and thought, everything is going in to this battle, to this first day, and sort of the enthusiasm, the mass enthusiasm for it. And uh, I didn't want to overdo, I mean, everyone knows the results of the first day of the Battle of the Somme, I mean, in, in Great Britain. Uh, I didn't want to overdo the carnage, so to speak, but I did, I did want to sort of show that great, great human endeavor is often put for sort of uh, interesting purposes or purposes that if, if that endeavor was put into something else uh, constructive, you know, we might have a better world. And, um, in terms of obviously you've spent uh, a lot of your career so far um, looking at war, looking at the effects of war, the, the causes of war and the, the kind of strange byproducts of war, you know, the, at the, the edges. Um, are you going to continue down that, that road in terms of future work or um, are, can you feel yourself going off in a different direction now? I think I need to go off in a different direction. I'm, I'm sort of finished in a way with it. I mean, I say that, but every now and then I'll still do, I'm working on a, a subject, I'm working on a story about Srebrenica now. So I'll I think my main, my main desire and the way I'm trying to steer the ship is away from this as much as possible. I'm still interested in, in uh, human violence and all that, but I, wanna, I want to approach it in different ways. I've had trouble drawing certain scenes and I realize it's because I don't understand certain psychological aspects of what goes on in people's minds um, at the time. So I'm, I'm more interested in things like psychology and hierarchy and, th and I think my work is going to take different directions now definitely. And do you think that'll uh, um, kind of influence the way you draw as well in terms of can you see that I mean I suppose that's one of these things that you can't really necessarily tell yet. But I can't tell completely but I, I hope on some level because I, I find drawing I don't think I draw realistically but I've always tried to draw realistically since I started doing my journalistic work and it never feels natural exactly. I always feel like I'm fighting against something. And I would like to go back, at least with some of my work, to a more natural place as far as what I draw or how I draw. Yeah, and certainly you can see that, you know, in terms of the, the, the kind of influences of the likes of Crumb and Mad, you know, um, kind of being very, very strong in your earlier work and then, and then kind of moving uh, in, in uh, uh, an opposite direction in some ways. Right. Um, I think it's, it's now time um, to give you all a chance to ask a question. Um, if you can wait for the microphone to reach you um, so that everybody can hear um, what you say. We've got about, I think, about 10 minutes um, or so. Um, so I think the 
gentleman with the glasses flashing his hand at the back was the first up. Um, oh, sorry, it's a lady at the back, so I couldn't see the, uh, the lady at the back with the glasses. I've learned never to state gender when doing your job. <laughs> it gets you into sticky situations. It's the lights. <laughs> Um, this may be a blatantly obvious question, but I, I wanted to ask you what uh, doing this, doing journalism using this form brings to journalism that is not brought to, isn't brought to the party by just using prose or photography or film. What can this genre do? And having been so present, almost inventing this genre, have you ever? encountered or resistance to it from a kind of more traditional way of, 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 of investigating human events? Well, I mean, to answer the first part of the question, um, uh, I was always worried what other journalists would think of my work. And I, at first, I avoided them completely. I, I barely met any journalists when I was in uh, the Palestinian territories the first time around. And in Bosnia, I think it took me two months before I actually start to hang out with other journalists. But what I found is if you can sort of talk relatively intelligently about the situation in a conversation, you were okay. And, and frankly, most of them were kind of delighted that I was a cartoonist. And sometimes were envious of the, the fact that I was going and spending uh, longer periods in, in certain places. And now the first question was about oh, what, what it brings. I mean, there are a number of things, but I'd say that the two main ones are that you can very, I think, you can very seamlessly shift into the, into the past. I mean, you saw those slides uh, of, the, of uh, what's going on with the Chechen refugees. When I wanted to go into the past, I could just, you know, research the research equipment, um, what people were wearing, what the trains looked like in those days. And I feel like I could sort of take the reader back there. It's something you, you can't do as well, I think, with documentary. Uh, with, you know, just sometimes you'll see like a documentary about, you know, the first crusade and, and they'll try to dramatize it and they'll have three guys on a horse, you know, crossing a desert. You think that was not the first crusade. <laughs> now, if I was going to draw the first crusade, I mean, you know, it's just up to my ability to sit at a drawing table. I could draw hundreds or thousands of people. So there's that advantage. The other one is, I mean, like every, every medium has its strengths. I mean, photojournalism certainly does. But I think what you can do with uh, comics is, is the repeated image allows something to seep into the mind of the reader. There's a lot of background material that's repeated over and over again, uh, no matter what's going on in the foreground, that will give the reader a sense of the place that often you can't get from prose. It's, it's more, it's an atmosphere that you can sort of build up without drawing attention to it. It's just there. Okay, another question from over here. Um, the non-gender specific person with the beard. <laughs> <laughs> you look just like the pictures on your book jacket, very handsome. But when you actually draw the stories, you look um, a bit like a dork. <laughs> What's going on with that? <laughs> well, did you, notice, did you notice I've become less dorky as time's gone by? Maybe you haven't noticed, but I was much dorkier in the first books. But, you know, that's how I, I felt. Um, and I was, in some ways, those drawings are accurate as far as my, my self-perception, not knowing what I was doing often in those situations. 
So I was very, I was bumble, I was showing myself bumbling around as a bumbling character because I think I was more like that. And as I progressed, I couldn't pretend that I was bumbling around as much. I mean, you do bumble or stumble from time to time, but I was a bit more seasoned in what I was doing. So I consequently upgraded myself. I upgraded <laughs> my looks, and um, and uh, you know didn't didn't show bumbling because I wasn't bumbling. Um, this lady here. Thank you. Uh, the way that you were describing your methodology as a journalist getting out into the neighborhoods and into these areas and meeting the people and men and women and the no differences you noticed made me, it jived so much with how I was trained as an anthropologist and as you were talking at the end about your interest in the psychology of moments and the hierarchy and perhaps these more cultural aspects of what it is that you've seen while you've been doing your reporting on these events. I wondered if you thought your style and your art and your craft might transfer over to a more kind of cultural and anthropological analysis of the kind of things that you see and do. Well, I've thought about that very question myself, and I, I hope so, because uh, I'd actually like to, in some, when I think of the future and what I'd like to do, on some level I'd like to do some of that. There's a scene in, in, the, um, in the Gaza book, which is kind of the intermission between various massacres, where um, it's about a feast, and um, it's, they're killing a bull. And it's just how everyone from the family gets involved in it. And I saw this scene, and I thought, I would, I'd like to show this and just really show how it all works, and then what they do with the meat, how they divide it up amongst uh, each other, how they give a third to the poor. I thought it was really fascinating, and it was really kind of, it was the most fun I had doing that book. And I thought in terms of anthropology and how I thought, you know, boy, cartoonists should really start, they should go to places and it's a good way of getting that sort of information across. Yeah. Another question, uh, gentleman here in the front row, or second by second row. Um, you seem to be very sort of on the, the cusp of, you know, where the conflicts are happening and you report on places that a lot of mainstream press um, isn't. Where are you sort of thinking, you know, at the moment? Where do you need to be or where do you need to be going? You know, what sort of areas should we be looking at at the minute? What sort of issue? Yeah, areas or issues. Well, I'm working on a number of different projects, but one of the ones I'm doing now is about Mesopotamia because I am interested in hierarchy. I, I began to be interested in how does the state get a person to kill another person? That, that began to interest me as I was working on various books. And I thought, how am I going to approach this story? And in, in the end, I thought, I'd like to look at first civilizations. And what's interesting is um, um, uh, I went to the Louvre, Louvre Museum to have a look at their Mesopotamia collection. And the first thing you see as you're going into that Near Eastern room is a big stele. It's, a, it's, it's basically the first government document but it's a, it's a lo rather large piece of stone that's been you know, chiseled in with cu uh, cuneiform. And it's a picture of a battle, uh, or a number of tiers, actually, almost like a cartoon strip of a battle uh, over a piece of land. And, the, and one, of the, one of the parts of the illustration is a big mound of bodies. And so, I mean, from the very beginning of civilization, these sorts of things have been happening, and states have got people to do this sort of thing. So, um, right now, what I'm doing is uh, uh, talking to archaeologists. I mean, I, I don't think I could ever become an expert in this myself, but I can maybe learn enough to talk to them 
about their insights into how societies developed in, in the direction we are in, where we are now. One or two more questions uh, up at the back. Um, whoever shouts loudest. Hi. I, I think anyone who's ever told a story, uh, either to prove a point or to make people laugh, has felt the seduction of altering the facts slightly in order to sort of improve the emphasis and the clarity. And if, if art is a lie that reveals the truth, where's the line when it just becomes an outright lie? You know, I feel like this must be something that's kind of a, a crux for you, precisely because you are partial and because you allow yourself to feel your subject. So how do you stay on the right side of that line? How do I stay on the right side of that line? Well, by being, I, I feel like if, if it's clear, at least my sympathies are clear, at least by what I'm reporting on. That should be clear. And the fact that I, that I am a character in the work it's an indication that you are seeing things through my eyes. So I already feel comfortable that people are aware that that's my, this is my viewpoint. So they can, they can judge it on that level, at least. To me, there, there, there is sort of a tension between the idea of journalism, which is supposed to show the facts as they were, and, and drawing. Because when you, we, when you are drawing, the very act is subjective. I mean, a lot of journalism is subjective. When you hold a camera and you take a picture, what, what are you leaving out over here and over here? I mean, um, there's a lot of subjectivity that comes into uh, even photojournalism, but I mean, I can't pretend that there isn't, just the very act of drawing isn't, um, you know, a, a, it's, it's clearly subjective. I didn't, don't make composite characters. I don't do anything like that. I look for very accurate quotes. You know, so there's that part of me that is a journalist in that way. But I don't, I don't have a problem with it because I feel what I'm doing is trying to present things as honestly as I can. I'm afraid to say, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Um, thank you so much uh, for being such an attentive audience. Um, also, thank you so much to Joe, um, standing on my right, uh, who's uh, been signing. Uh, thank you hugely to Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust for sponsoring this event. But most importantly, thank you so much to Joe Sacco for your time. Thank you. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.